Chapter 38 Finn tied her hair back and crammed Creech's hat down onto her head, glad she didn't have to wear any more of his clothing. For once, she had no need to play the captain's part, but she couldn't just be herself either. She had to be a boy again. At least that didn't require her to act. Passing for a boy wasn't something she had to put much effort into. All she had to do was tie back her hair, dress in loose clothing, stand back, and watch. She hoped their plan worked as well as Armand said it would. Most of the crew was gathered at the starboard rail watching the Barbary Coast roll by as they approached Tripoli. Jack was on the quarterdeck and dressed better than Finn had ever seen him. In his coat, he managed to look positively distinguished, though Finn wondered where the tailor had found the acre of wool that went into making it. The coat was ornamented with brass buttons that Jack continually inspected and thumbed clean. It even looked as though he'd combed his beard. When he saw Finn approach, he tugged at his lapels and wrenched his shoulders around nervously. Finn sidled up to him and stuffed her hands into her pockets. Right nice tent you got there, Jack. Room in there for me? Jack ground his teeth. I'll bury you in it if you like, Button. He pulled down on the cuff of his coat sleeve and twisted his shoulders around again. Where's Armand? Finn shrugged. Practicing his Spanish, I hope. Jack grunted and tugged on his lapels. I don't like it, Button. I don't trust that one. It'll be fine, Jack. Just stick to the plan. Finn walked to the helm to stand next to Topper as the ship swung south into the harbor. Tripoli jutted out of the rock-strewn coast like an exposure of bone. Its alabaster walls and minarets gleamed in the sun and stretched around the half-moon bay in a barbarous white grin. Broad, squat buildings hunched around the waterfront while behind them, looking over their shoulders, brazen domes, lance-like spires, and crystal-white towers mounted up and shimmered in the heat. The bay itself squirmed with trade. Small ships, fitted with gaff-rigged sails, scuttled across the water, driven by oars, splayed from their sides like insectine legs. The fiddler's green dwarfed most of them. She stood out like a beetle among ants and they parted before her as she passed. Dark sailors hung at the ropes of the small ships and considered them in silence. At the forecastle, Nut waved to each ship as they passed, but his greetings went unanswered. Got a bad feeling I do, said Topper. Finn ignored him. Ahead of them, a skiff pushed away from the wharf. Four men heaved at its oars while another stood in the bow with one hand held in the air. He was dressed in a white robe that hung to his feet and had a black scarf wrapped around his neck. A tiny wine-colored cap sat atop his head and a tassel dangled against his ear. As his boat drew nearer, he began to wave. Dockmaster? asked Finn. I suppose so, said Topper. Armand slipped up beside them. Follow him, he said. Topper raised a hand in answer and turned the wheel toward the small boat. The robed man shouted at his oarsmen and flailed at them with a crop until they had their boat turned back toward the wharf. The crew brought in the sails, and Jack cautioned everyone to keep their eyes sharp. To either side of the ship, small vessels drew in alongside and followed. The sailors on their decks were dark-haired and swarthy with loose, billowy pantaloons and long beards. Few wore shirts. Some wrapped their heads in thick turbans. Others wore the same style of tasseled cap as the dockmaster. There was nowhere among them a smile. They whispered to one another and stared at Finn and her crew like children do at strange animals in traveling shows. Here and there, 
The sunlight glinted off the wide, curved blade of a scimitar. The ship approached the wharf, and the dockmaster shouted in his native tongue as he motioned them to their berth. Topper complied and guided the fiddler's green to rest. The dockmaster clambered out of his dinghy, swatting at his underlings when they offered help, and paced the wharf until Jack extended a plank for him. The man hobbled onto the deck of the fiddler's green and spoke emphatically in a strange tongue. Armand stepped forward and spread his arms in welcome. Somos de España. The dockmaster motioned at the merchant's ensign flying from the mizzen. He shrugged and wrinkled his face as if he had been insulted. Vosotros venid me ciudad sin saber hablar mi idioma. Armand put his hands together and bowed his head. Perdónenos. Nuestro intérprete ha muerto de enfermedad en nuestro capitán. Habla solo inglés. Un inglés? The dockmaster sneered and spat on the deck. ¿Dónde está vuestro capitán? Armand stepped back without lifting his eyes from the deck and swept out one hand to indicate Jack. Nuestro capitán está aquí. Jack stepped forward. The dockmaster studied him briefly, then spoke in English. Only a cur comes to the door to bark. A man speaks in the tongue of his master. Jack bowed. We ask forgiveness. Our translator has gone to God. The dockmaster nodded to himself several times, then pulled a kerchief from the folds of his robe and blew his nose into it. Then he is in better company. He tucked his kerchief back into his robe and continued. The Pasha welcomes the Spanish so long as they bear the proper documents. You are under contract, no doubt. Jack grunted in affirmation. I contracted by Lorenzo Escriba Fuente of Valencia. The dockmaster nodded. For what cargo? Salt and linen. Jack answered and handed over a sealed trade contract. The dockmaster snapped the seal and studied it. When he was satisfied, he handed it back to Jack. You have three days. Do not linger. The dockmaster pulled a ledger from his robes. He announced fees for docking and scrawled down the ship's name once paid. He departed without thanks or salutation. Well, that went as smooth as can be expected, said Jack. The activity of the waterfront was much like that of any other port city, busy, full of merchants and workmen coming and going, shouting and singing. But where the predominant colors of waterfronts Finn had known were brown hues of filth and disrepair, the chief shades of Tripoli were of white and ochre, and here and there fiery red standing out like violent accents. The buildings shone white as if the sun had burned away their color. Where their mud facades had chipped and worn away, near the corners and foundations, darker stone peeked out and radiated cracks like thin fingers. In a courtyard nearby, an auctioneer mounted a platform lined with men and women. Each had a metal collar fastened about the neck, and a chain ran from collar to collar, linking them together. Another chain linked the shackles at their wrists. Their heads hung forward, weary and resigned. The auctioneer pushed a skinny young woman out to the edge of the platform, and in the crowd, hands went up. The auctioneer pointed and cried out as each new hand rose, but the young woman kept her head bowed and wrapped her arms around her bosom. To the east rose the Pasha's keep, visible to Finn above the waterfront storehouses and smaller buildings. It was a castle in the oldest and most stalwart sense, 
an edifice of stone erected high and foreboding with the singular purpose of defense. Atop the battlements and outer baileys, guards paced the walls and peered from tall arrow slits. Well, we won't find a way in from here, said Finn. She called Topper and gave him a handful of coins. Bring us back some of those robes and caps everybody's wearing. We'd better fit in. Jack grunted. The rest of you can do all the seeing you like. I best stick here. He kicked his wooden leg out and stomped it on deck. This thing'll do naught but slow you down and draw eyes. As Topper trotted across the plank, Finn said, Just close, Topper. Pastries can wait. Topper grimaced and shook his head. I don't like this place, Captain. Doubt there's a pastry to be found, and even if there was, I got no hanker to taste the devil's honey. His face drooped and he ambled off down the street. Topper returned an hour later with a bundle under his arm and handed it to Finn. Inside were tasseled caps, black sashes, and white robes. Finn tossed a set to Armand and ducked into her cabin. She retrieved Betsy, loaded her, and slipped the gun into her belt. Then she pulled on the robe and tied the sash at her waist, trying her best to arrange it in the same way she had seen the men ashore wearing them. Once satisfied, she donned the cap and left the cabin. Armand was dressed and waiting for her. Jack had an amused smirk on his face now that he wasn't the only one dressed up. We'll be back directly, Finn assured him. You keep your wits and don't do nothing foolish, said Jack. Finn waved his cautions aside. We'll be fine. We're just having a look. Finn and Armand crossed the plank and stepped onto the wharf. Though she felt conspicuous in her costume, she was swept into the river of people on the waterfront without garnering a concerned glance from anyone. In the chaos of the street, Finn lost sight of the fortress. She stopped to look around to see which street led in the right direction, but as soon as she slowed down, men pushed her to the side to rush past. She was bumped first one way and then shoved another. In moments, she had lost her bearing completely. She wasn't even sure which side of the street faced the sea. Then Armand was in front of her. He grabbed her arm, pointed down a side street, and pulled her toward it. Do you know where we're going? She asked Armand. This way, I believe, he said and continued on. They passed through a market filled with strange fruits and goats, and something Finn had never seen before, a tall, four-legged animal with shaggy brown fur and a massive hump on its back. A camel, Armand called it. As Finn passed the animal, it stuck out its teeth and bellowed at her. A group of women passed with veils across their faces so that only their dark-lined eyes were visible. They picked through the fruits and meats of the market and never spoke. Children clung to their robes. When Finn and Armand emerged from the market, they turned east and beheld the fortress. It rose up some forty feet above the street. The battlements were split at intervals by arrow slits, each darkened by the shadowy hint of a gunman at his post. The gate was open and watched over by a dozen guards, some in the street before the gate, and more atop it, peering through the windows of the barbican. Armand pulled her to the side and they huddled behind a wagon. They watched as men arrived at the gatehouse on business. Guards stopped each man or group as they approached. Though neither Finn nor Armand could understand what was said, it was clear that everyone entering the keep was questioned. If the questions were answered agreeably, the men were searched. The guards opened each man's bags and satchels and flung open wagons. Some men approached with camels and the guards shouted at the men until they forced their beasts to their knees so the guards could inspect the bundles tied to their humped backs. 
Often a group of merchants approached with multiple beasts or wagons filled with goods bound either for the stores of the keep or for the pasha's personal treasury, possibly bribes or offerings from lesser lords. Whatever their purpose, Armand gleaned from these large deliveries a weakness in the guard. If the guards searched a single man or small group, they were thorough and studious. But when faced with large deliveries, they were irritated by the time required to search each wagon or beast, and further irritated when the queue of men behind gathered up in wait. As a result, whenever a large delivery fell under inspection, the search was half-hearted and cursory. You see, said Armand, they look once at each wagon and not again. A man could slip into one after it is searched and enter without notice. Finn and Armand remained watching the gate for the rest of the afternoon, noting each entrant and how each was treated and what the guards searched and what they did not. When they made their way back to the ship at dusk, Finn was confident that Armand was right. Well, then what? asked Jack. He raised an expectant eyebrow. Finn and Armand glanced sideways at one another. Then we steal into the keep and find the girl, said Armand. Jack paced the cabin. His leg clanked and creaked and he shook his head back and forth. And that's the easy bit, I take it. This sounds like a good idea to you, Button. And why wouldn't it, said Finn. Armand placed his hand on Finn's shoulder to quiet her and spoke to Jack. There is foot traffic in the keep. We can move about as well as any other. We will find the Countess, dress her as we are, and slip out like any other merchant. Finn shrugged Armand's hand away. Jack harumphed. And you think this countess will be unguarded? You think no one will see she's missing? Finn snapped back at him in irritation. You haven't even been off the ship, Jack. We have. We've been there. We've seen the keep, and Armand is right. We sneak in, we get the countess, we sneak out. That's all there is to it. If you've got a better plan, then spit it out. Finn knew immediately that she had overstepped her bounds. A deep rattle filled Jack's chest. His brow came down and put his eyes into shadow. Mind the size of your britches, Button. Your little captain game has about gone an inch beyond my liking. You want to give your speeches and play your part with the crew, you go right ahead. But you best not take that tone with me, sailor. This ain't no barroom tussle we're plotting. This is grown folks' business. Well, what choice do we have, Jack? Either come up with a better plan or we do it like Armand says. Armand smiled faintly and crossed his arms. The rattle in Jack's chest grew into a rumble. He stepped up to Armand and towered over him. We ain't thought this through, Button, and I don't trust this one. Well, I do, said Finn. Armand's smile deepened and he inched closer to Jack. He had a knife in his hand and he raked his thumb along the blade. Like the captain say, Jack. Either offer up a better plan, or we do it my way. Jack's lip curled up and he ground his teeth. Each man leaned toward the other and wound himself tight. Enough, shouted Finn. Armand is right. Just follow the plan and have the ship ready. Jack quieted altogether and slowly turned from Armand, looking at Finn. His fists were balled up and the vein on his forehead stood out, throbbing and purple. Finn gulped and took a step backward. Then, without another word, Jack pushed Armand out of the way and stomped out of the cabin. The next day, Finn and Armand once again dressed in robes and tasseled hats. 
Armand carried a second robe in the folds of his own, and Finn concealed an extra hat folded in her sash. They approached the portcullis and waited. A steady stream of men approached, were questioned, and searched. Most came alone or in small groups. Few brought more than what they carried in their arms. When merchants with larger loads did approach, they came when the guards were unbusied by other visitors, and Armand judged it too dangerous to attempt their entry. They waited and hoped for an opportunity when the gate was crowded and the guards were overworked. Twice Armand felt they had lingered too long and were in danger of suspicion, so they sauntered back down the street to meander through the market for a while. When they left the Fiddler's Green, Jack hadn't said a word. He ignored them and went about preparing the ship for sea. He'd given Nut a bell and sent him aloft with orders to set it ringing as soon as he saw Finn and Armand coming back with the Countess. Finn imagines Nut perched all morning on the mainmast with the bell in one hand and the clapper in the other. His eyes peeled wide and aimed down the street. She hoped he didn't fall asleep waiting for them. Armand nudged her. Opportunité, chérie. A caravan of four wagons and several camels clogged the gate, and a long line of single merchants crowded behind it. The guards were in an uproar trying to maintain order. Armand fell into the line at the rear and Finn followed. Her stomach fluttered wildly. As the bulk of the guards searched the caravan and questioned its drivers, another group motioned the smaller merchants to the side. The line diverted to the left of the gate and Finn held close to Armand as he stepped to the right and poised himself behind a wagon filled with bolts of cloth. A guard climbed onto the wagon and prodded at its contents with a scimitar. He shouted something at Armand and moved to the next wagon. Armand took Finn by the arm and urged her into the wagon and then quickly leapt in behind her. They arranged themselves beneath a canvas and waited. Finn could barely breathe. Her heart kicked in her chest like a fretful animal, and the oppressive heat made the air thick and difficult to breathe. Armand clamped his hands down upon her and held her firmly in his grip. Finn told herself that once the wagon was in motion, they'd be safe. But when the wagon lurched forward, she found the opposite was the case. They had passed the point of no return. Finn broke into a shiver. Jack was right. This was madness. Armand's arms tightened around her. Take ease, Sherry. We are within. How long should we wait? She whispered. Armand kept silent. The wagon moved along in fits and jerks. Around them, Finn heard footsteps and voices. Once, someone beside the wagon ran the blade of a scimitar down the length of it, letting it clatter across its boards. Finn wanted to fling the canvas away and run, but Armand held her fast. Then the voices around were gone, and the only sound was the creaking of the wagon's wheels and the sharp bray of animals. Now, Sherry. Armand pulled the canvas away and pushed her from the wagon. They were in the mouth of a tunnel. Like a black throat, it descended into the depths of the keep. Armand slipped out behind her and the wagon jerked to a stop. The driver turned and stared at them in contemplation, and then he began to yell. His cries echoed off the walls of the tunnel and ended in an abrupt gasp as Armand silenced him with a knife. Armand swore and rushed to the head of the tunnel. He pressed his body to the wall and peered around the corner into the courtyard. He snapped his head back and swore again. Atop the wall, a guard stepped from behind a stone battlement and peered down at the wagon driver lying dead on the ground. The guard pointed and shouted, then ran off. A moment later, an alarm bell pealed through the keep. Men were coming, a lot of men. 
Armand said something, but it was lost in the echo of rushing feet and clattering buckles. The noise rattled through the air and bounced off the flat stone of the keep. Sound seemed to come from every direction at once. A lone guard charged around the corner. The scimitar in his hand gleamed like a silvery crescent moon. He saw Finn and ran toward her with his blade high. Unseen, Armand spilled from a shadow. His arm struck out and he opened the man's throat with a knife. The man groaned and continued running until he disappeared into the blackness of the tunnel, leaving a trail of blood to mark his way. We must run, shouted Armand. 